Good evening. It's good to be here uh, with you again and glad to have the opportunity to um, study, study God's Word and to have the chance to uh, teach about it well. Um, also, it's, very, it's a very rich time, you know, um, considering God's Word and, and also how to, to share that with others. So it's good to have the chance to, uh, to do this. Uh, so tonight we're going to be continuing in the book of Mark. It was just uh, over a month ago that we read through the first eight verses of chapter one. And so tonight we're going to continue with the next seven verses. Our goal for tonight is going to be the same goal that we had uh, last time. We're looking to get to know Jesus by reading Mark's account of Jesus' life and to use it as a guide, bringing in the other gospels and uh, other parts of scripture as well uh, to help us understand the uh, meaning and significance of these events. Our goal is to have the mindset that Paul describes in Philippians uh, three verse, or chapter 3, verses 7 and 8. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as lost for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. One thing that we talked about last time was the uh, question of what would Jesus do? And I think one of the best ways of knowing what Jesus might do uh, in a situation is to understand well what it was that Jesus did. So as we go through these events, we're going to spend time on them, considering them to help us know them well, which will help us better know um, what Jesus did and also help us to know what Jesus would do. In verses 1 through 7, we saw how Mark prepared us for the gospel and for the appearance of Jesus. He did this by telling us of the messenger who was to go before God to prepare the way. Tonight, we're going through verses 9 through 15, which could be seen as the preparation and the start of Jesus' public ministry. Since it's not a long section, we're going to start reading back at verse 1 and go through verse 15 to get something of a sense of the flow of the narrative. So let us first pray uh, and then let us read. Our Father in heaven, as we prepare to read your word, we ask that you help us to know Jesus. May we fellowship with him and know him better that we may more faithfully walk with him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Mark chapter 1, starting at verse 1. <clears throat> the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea was going out to him and all the people of Jerusalem, and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River confessing their sins. John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist, and his diet was locusts and wild honey. And he was preaching and saying, After me one is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. I baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was, baptizing by John, was baptized by John in the Jordan. Immediately coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opening and the Spirit, like a dove, descending upon him. 
And a voice came out of the heavens, you are my beloved son, in you I am well pleased. Immediately the spirit impelled him to go out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild beasts, and the angels were ministering to him. Now after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee, preaching the gospel of God, and saying, the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. This passage contains three events as we hear of Jesus beginning his public ministry. We read of Jesus being baptized by John in the Jordan. We read of Jesus being led out into the wilderness. And we read of the start of Jesus' ministry in Galilee. In our time together, we will go through these three events, considering their meaning and significance, as well as what they teach us about Jesus, drawing application from them as we go. After this, we will look at the overall message that we could see as tying these three events together. First, we have the baptism of Jesus. The waters of baptism is the place where Mark opened his gospel. As John prepared the people of Israel for the good news of salvation that God was bringing through Jesus Christ, people were going to John to repent and to be baptized. In verse 9, Jesus enters the picture. We are told that Jesus comes from Nazareth in Galilee. And this is farther north than where the others who were going to John to be baptized were coming from. We're told that the others who were going to John to be baptized were coming from Judea and Jerusalem. If you know something about the geography of Palestine, you know that more toward the north of Israel you have the Sea of Galilee, and then to the west of that is the region of Galilee, and inside Galilee is Nazareth. And then going south from the Sea of Galilee is the Jordan River, which connects to the Dead Sea. And then to the west of the Dead Sea is the region of Judea, um, in which is uh, Jerusalem. So we hear that Jesus came from a different location from those that we heard about earlier in the gospel. And we also find that Jesus came with a different purpose as well. Jesus came from Nazareth, which wasn't an important place in Israel. I think, if anything, it might have been a place that was looked down on by many of the other people in Israel. In the Gospel of John, when Philip says to Nathanael that um, he wants him to meet Jesus and that Jesus came from Nazareth, what Nathanael says to Philip is, can anything good come from Nazareth? But Nazareth was a place that Jesus' family had moved to almost out of necessity, after Jesus had been born in Bethlehem, Joseph, the father of Jesus, had been warned to flee to Egypt in order to escape Herod, who was the king of Judea. And so then he moved to Egypt. But then later when Egypt died, Joseph and his family returned to Israel, but they moved to the northern region of Galilee because Archelaus, who was the son of Herod, was reigning in Herod's place. And so Archelaus must not have been much better than, than his father Herod. Jesus came to be baptized by John with a different purpose than the others who are going to John to be baptized. And Mark in his gospel doesn't give an explanation as to why it was that Jesus was baptized. But Jesus, unlike the others who are going to be baptized, didn't have any sins that needed to be washed away, and Jesus had nothing that needed to be uh, repented for. 
From the account of this baptism in the Gospel of Matthew, we are told that John even tried to prevent Jesus from being baptized. And he said, I have need to be baptized by you, and why do you come to me? And Jesus replied to John by saying that it is fitting to fulfill all righteousness. That is, that the baptism of Jesus was the right thing to do. And so how was it that the baptism of Jesus was the right thing to do? So first, I think baptism is a way that Jesus was identifying with his people. Baptism is something that Jesus shared with the people who were going out to John to be baptized, and it's also something that Jesus will share with all of his followers. John Calvin puts it well when he says that Jesus was baptized so that the faithful might be more surely persuaded that they are engrafted into his, that is Christ's body, buried with him in baptism, that they may rise again to newness of life. So how is it that we know that we belong to Christ? One of the ways is that we share in Christ's baptism. Second, Jesus' baptism was a sign that he was taking on the sins of the people. As Jesus was being baptized, he was standing in the place where sinners were supposed to stand. Jesus was taking the place of the sinner. That is the same thing that Jesus would do when he hung from the cross. In the account that the Apostle John gives of Jesus' baptism, we hear that when John the Baptist saw Jesus coming, he called out, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. In his baptism, Jesus was taking on and he would ultimately take away the sins of the world. There's a passage from the Old Testament that I think can help us understand this. In the book of Leviticus, we hear of many of the sacrifices and offerings that God commanded from the people of Israel. And these sacrifices were a sign of repentance and the forgiveness that looked forward to the final and the sufficient uh, sacrifice that was offered by Christ. There's one sacrifice in particular that I think is worth looking at in more detail, and that is the one that is described in Leviticus 16, verses 21 through 22, where it talks about the law of atonement. There we read, Then Aaron shall lay both of his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the sons of Israel and all their transgressions in regard to all their sins. And he shall lay them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who stands in readiness. The goat shall bear on itself all of their iniquities to a solitary land, and he shall be released into the wilderness. So in this situation, the goat hadn't committed the sins of the people, but symbolically, in a way that had true spiritual significance, those sins were placed on that goat, and the goat would depart bearing the sins of the people. Now, as we talk about the whole idea of placing sin on someone or something, that idea might sound to some people as if it is outdated. But let us take a moment to consider what people in this world do with their sin. And if we consider it, we find that they do very much the same thing. They look for somewhere or someone to put their sin on in order that it might be taken from them. One way that people do this is by placing the blame or the fault for their sin on someone else. They'll say that the only reason that they did something wrong was because of what someone else did or because of the situation that they were in. Or else they'll place their sin simply on who they were in the past, trying to remove it from who they are now by saying that the person who did that sin was you know, who they were in the past and that they're not that person anymore. Or else what people will do is simply try to place sin out of their minds. They do their best to forget about it. 
and think that it is taken away from them if they simply refuse to think about it or to recognize it. But those methods for dealing with sin do not work. And a person who tries to use those methods will find that they're continually having to try to find places to uh, put their sin or somewhere to put their sin. Those places don't have the ability to take their sin away and their sin is still with them. That's where we see the book uh, Pilgrim's Progress beginning. The main character of that book recognizes that he has this great burden on his back, and that burden is the presence of, the, of his sins in his life. And so part of what he does in that book is look for a way to be relieved of that burden. And the only way for this burden to be removed and the only way for sin to be taken away from us is to allow Jesus to take our place. As Jesus takes the place of the sinner in his baptism, Jesus does this willingly. Uh, pick up a, on a word from our passage, not to make too much of the word, but to use that word to point out uh, a truth. So what we read is that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee. This journey to be baptized by John in the Jordan was a journey that Jesus made willingly. Jesus was not said to appear in the same way that John the Baptist appeared, but we hear that Jesus came. Jesus came to take away the sins of the world. The sins weren't forced on him, but Jesus accepted those sins. This is true of all the things that Jesus does up until and through his crucifixion. It was not that Jesus was evading the people who were looking to put him to death and finally those people caught up to him, but it was that Jesus was uh, accepting the sins of the people and paying the price for those sins. And that's true of everything that does or Jesus does to his crucifixion. In John 10 verses 17 and 18, Jesus says, I lay down my life. No one has taken it from me, but I lay it down of my own initiative. So we have seen how Jesus, by his baptism, is identifying with God's people. We've also seen how Jesus is taking the place of the sinner. We also now see that Jesus, through his baptism, is being shown who he is, or God is making clear through Jesus' baptism who it is that Jesus is. And this, this uh, picture of the baptism that we have in the Gospels is often pointed to as a passage that will show us the Trinity. And we see all three persons of the Trinity here in this passage. We hear from God the Father, we see God the Son, and we also see the Holy Spirit descend as a dove. A voice from heaven declares, You are my beloved Son, in you I am well pleased. And if Mark didn't distinguish before the difference between Jesus' baptism, the baptism of the other sinners who are going to um, John to be baptized, Mark does that here. God declares that he is pleased with Jesus, meaning that God does not find any fault with Jesus. Jesus is as free from anything imperfect as any part of creation was when God first created. We hear these same words echoed in what Paul writes in Colossians 1 verse 19. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. We see the Son being baptized. We hear the Father's blessing. We see the Spirit descend. And there is no distinction made between these three persons of the Trinity as to their purpose or as to their nature. These three are one. The next event in the life of Jesus that we read about in this passage is Jesus in the wilderness. We are told that immediately Jesus is led into the wilderness by the Spirit. 
And so as Jesus prepares to begin his public ministry, Jesus begins with a time away from others and a time where he can draw near to God, be with God, and prepare for what is next. Often, I think it's early in a person's life as a Christian that a strong relationship with God is formed. If we look at the parable of the sower in the Gospel of Matthew, we see that one of the problems with the seed that falls on the rocky soil is that it doesn't produce any root. And so when the sun comes out, those plants are scorched and they wither away. Having a time of personal prayer and communion with God is important at any time in a Christian's life, but I think it's often most important early in a Christian's life. This time that the Christian spends drawing near to God will help develop that strong root of faith that will sustain that person through the trials that they face. By my second or third year of college, uh, I'd learned that I enjoyed studying probably more than most people do. In my senior year, one of my roommates would joke that I must have had a uh, secret girlfriend because I was often out until eight or nine at night. And that wasn't true. My life has always been uh, much less exciting than that. And instead, what I was doing was looking for uh, a quiet place to study. On the campus of Calvin College, if you know very much about it, you have the main campus, you know, and then just off to the side of the main campus is the seminary. And what I found during my junior year or so was that in the evenings, the seminary was a, a very quiet place to study. I was majoring in biology at that time. I was thinking I might go on to become a pharmacist. And the class that took up most of my studying time then was organic chemistry. And so in the evenings, I would spend my time studying, trying to understand what was happening on a very, very small level. And then to take a break and to rest my eyes, I would go outside and I would pray and think about God and what God was doing on a very, very large scale. That is a time that I look back to where I learned about how many things I could be, bring to God in prayer. I prayed about my future. I prayed for my family. I prayed that God would use my life for his own purpose. And I prayed that God, er, and as I prayed, I thought about what God said in his word about each of these things. And still today, I look back at that time as a sweet time and a time that when I remember it, gives me strength. Early in a person's life as a believer, taking the time to talk with God and to hear from God through his word provides the strength that that person will need for the doubts or trials that they might experience later in life. We're also told that this time in the wilderness was a time of temptation. Mark doesn't give a picture of exactly what this temptation uh, might have looked like during this 40 days of temptation. And actually, if we look at the Gospels of um, Matthew and Luke also, we don't find that there's not a lot of detail about what those 40 days of temptation were like. It's actually afterwards that we hear of those temptations that we typically think of, the turning the stones into bread or casting himself uh, from the temple. But as those 40 days, we don't have a very clear picture from the Gospels uh, what that time might have been like. And even though we aren't told about them specifically, I think that we can get a picture of them uh, from other parts of scripture as we consider the significance of it being 40 days that Jesus was in the wilderness. So for one, the people of Israel were in the wilderness for 40 years as God prepared for them to enter Canaan. And during that time, Israel was learning to depend on God. And also during the flood, the rain, we read, fell for 40 days and 40 nights as Noah and his family was in the ark, being protected by God there. 
We hear of Elijah, too, who went without food for 40 days as he traveled to the mountain of God, where God met with him. And so for each of these um, people or peoples, that time was a time of testing and preparation. It was a time in which each of them needed to learn to depend on God. And none of them depended on God completely during that time, but they learned to depend on him better. But for Jesus in his period in the wilderness, unlike the others, I believe that we can know that he trusted completely in God during that time. We read in Hebrews 4, verse 15, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. He was tempted as Israel, Noah, or Elijah was, yet Jesus was without sin. I think we can also understand something about Jesus' time in the wilderness through the phrase that he was with the wild beasts, which was uh, an interesting phrase to me as I um, read over this this passage in, in preparation. And I found that there are basically two interpretations of what that phrase means. And I don't know necessarily if one of those interpretations is clearly the correct one. And I think that that can be okay. Both of them could shed some light on what it was for Jesus to be in the wilderness. And I think it also brings up an opportunity to um, use a good theological word, uh, which is the word perspicacity. We use the word um, when we talk about the perspicacity of Scripture. And so what that phrase recognizes is that there are certain parts of Scripture that can be hard to understand, but that the overall um, central meaning and purpose of Scripture is very clear. So talking about Scripture sometimes being hard to understand, it's something that even Peter acknowledges, the Apostle Peter, um, in his second letter, um, in uh, 2 Peter 3, verse 16, when Peter writes of the letters of Paul, and he says of those letters in which are some things to, that are hard to understand. So some things in Scripture might be hard to understand and might have different viewpoints, but what the perspicacity of Scripture tells us is that in regard to the most important things of Scripture, especially things regarding salvation or how it is that God calls us to live, Scripture is perfectly clear. It's clear in such a way that somebody who is hearing it for the first time can understand it, but also somebody who has spent many years studying Scripture can understand it. So what do we understand about Jesus being in the wilderness with the wild animals? What some scholars say is that Jesus lived peaceably with the animals and that this picture of Jesus in the wilderness was similar to the picture of Adam and Eve in the garden, except that for Jesus, unlike for Adam and Eve, Jesus didn't fall when he was tempted by the devil. And one of the ways that they will support this view is by pointing out that the Greek word used for with is typically used in a context where it's speaking of a harmonious relationship. And so that is one view But another view is that these animals were hostile towards Jesus and that Jesus being with the wild animals shows more of the trials through which God preserved Jesus, perhaps even shutting the mouths of the wild beasts as God did for Daniel in the den of lions. And support for that view says that Mark may have included that as an encouragement for uh, the Christians at that time. It was believed that many of the Christians that Mark wrote to were enduring persecution under Emperor Nero, and wild animals were often a way that that persecution was carried out. Christians were put in the skins of wild animals and then killed by dogs or by lions. 
And so what Mark may have been doing was encouraging the Christians of that time by showing them that Jesus also faced a similar type of a danger. So his time in the wilderness was a time of preparation, and a part of that preparation was temptation. And as we consider this temptation of Jesus, let us take a moment to look at the topic of temptation a little bit more broadly. The question I've wondered about in the past is whether or not it is wrong in and of itself to be tempted. We certainly don't want to be tempted, and that's why we pray in the Lord's Prayer that we ask God to lead us not into temptation. But temptation can also be a way of proving the authenticity of our faith. And another translation for the word temptation is testing. When we are tempted and when we resist temptation by looking to God, we prove the genuineness of our faith. We prove that our faith and the convictions of our faith don't disappear when we're presented with money or fame or any other thing that might look good um, in the short run, but that could be harmful to us in the long run. And considering the, the uh, topic of temptation, a good passage to consider is James chapter 1 in verses 12 through 14. And here James writes, Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. So is it wrong to be tempted? We read that Jesus was tempted by the devil. And so I don't think it can be wrong in and of itself to be tempted. John Calvin writes on the passage in James by distinguishing between an inward temptation and an outward temptation. When Jesus was being tempted by the devil, he was being tempted outwardly, but he wasn't being tempted inwardly. But from what James writes, it's almost as if the temptation that he's writing about implies some sort of a motion toward the sin. I think one thing that's worth noting here is that James was writing to sinners, right? He wasn't writing this letter to Jesus or applying to Jesus' situation, but he was writing to people who were um, the, I guess, the people who were under original sin, who were still trying to overcome uh, the sin in their lives. And so I guess how that could apply to us is that we could consider when we are tempted, whether or not there is any motion toward that sin. Are we encouraging that temptation or dwelling on it? And if we are, and almost regardless of whether we are or not, it's good for us to pray, even as we heard again this morning, lead us not into temptation. It's also worth noting that this temptation takes place early in the ministry of Jesus. One of the commentators on this passage wrote that before Jesus faced temptation attesting in his public ministry, Jesus faced temptation by the devil in the wilderness. That brings out another application that we can take from this passage. And this is that temptations are often faced and defeated internally before they are faced and defeated publicly. When we talk about setting down a strong root of faith for ourselves early in our relationship with God, a part of this is strengthening our faith in God by preparing for what we might encounter in the future. There are many applications for this, but I think one that fits particularly well is the topic of sex before marriage. 
If a young person hasn't dealt firmly with his or her perspective on that topic before getting into a relationship, then when they get into a situation where, to borrow a phrase from Song of Solomon, love is stirred up, that isn't the time to decide what is or isn't acceptable. And the same is true for many other sins and temptations. The best time to decide what is right or wrong is not the moment that we're forced to take an action. In uh, chapter 24 of the book of Joshua, the people of Israel are beginning to settle in the land that God had promised them. And so here at a place called Shechem, Joshua speaks to the people and he recounts to them the things that the Lord has done for them. And then Joshua says, starting at verse 14 of chapter 24, Now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and truth. And put away the gods which your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. If it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves today whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served, which were beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Early on, as the people of Israel began to settle in the land, Joshua called on the people of Israel to recognize the temptations that they would face as they settled into a new land among nations who did not know the Lord. And Joshua is calling on them to make their commitment to serve God. And even now, many of us are older, but we aren't so old that we aren't going to face temptations in the days, weeks, or even the years ahead. And even though we're going to face these temptations in the future, we can have a victory over them today. We can resolve that despite sickness, despite loss, despite hardship, despite suffering, and even despite prosperity and comfort, still we will serve the Lord. As Job says in chapter 13, verse 15, though he slay me, I will trust in him. We have gone over the baptism of Jesus. We have gone over the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. The third and final event in our passage could be called uh, the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. Now, unlike Jesus' time in the wilderness, which we are told uh, takes place immediately after Jesus was baptized, we aren't told how soon it was um, after this that Jesus goes into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. If we look at this passage in the context of what we know from the other gospels, uh, particularly from the gospel of John, I think we can understand that in between the time when Jesus was tempted and before he proclaimed that the time was fulfilled, Jesus traveled, Jesus taught, people began to follow Jesus, and Jesus even baptized. But what we read about in verse 14 signals a change. It is a time after John has been taken to prison. It shows that the time of preparation has come to an end, both the preparation of the people who would hear Jesus' ministry and also the preparation of Jesus for the ministry that he is about to begin. A helpful passage to compare this with is John chapter 3, verse 22, which I'll take a moment here to read. After these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea and there he was spending time with them and baptizing. John was also baptizing in Anon near Salem because there was much water there and people were coming and were being baptized, for John had not yet been thrown into prison. Therefore, there arose a discussion on the part of John's disciples with a Jew about purification. 
And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, who was with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing and all are coming to him. John answered and said, a man can receive nothing unless it was given him from heaven. You yourselves are my witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent ahead of him. He who, was the bride, or he who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. He must increase, but I must decrease. There are a few things to note as we look at this passage alongside our passage in Mark. And the first is that the timeline and the narrative given by Mark and by John have a different focus. Mark doesn't discuss much what Jesus does publicly until after Jesus has been put into prison. But by the account of John, we hear that people were following Jesus and that Jesus was even baptizing as John was still baptizing. And thinking about that, I was greatly helped by D.A. Carson's commentary on the Gospel of John, uh, who considers different viewpoints for this. And by reading through those, I think it is best for, understand, for us to understand that there were many things that Jesus did uh, between the time that he was tempted and when he went to Galilee to begin the ministry that would lead him to the cross. The second thing is that we can recognize that in both of them, there was a time that the ministry of John the Baptist was completed and where the ministry of Jesus became the central focus. In the case of the Gospel of Mark, that is the point that Mark wants to get to quickly, whereas John in his Gospel was more focused on the things that Jesus did early on and who Jesus talked to before that time. But in both of these accounts, there's a specific point where the gospel, for the Gospel writers and also for Jesus where his ministry begins. And we see something of that in the Gospel of John when Jesus is at the wedding of Cana, when Mary goes to Jesus to let them know that they had run out of wine, Jesus says to Mary that my hour has not yet come. Mark is looking to get to the point where Jesus' hour has come. And this hour comes when the ministry of John the Baptist draws to a close. The purpose that John had been sent there for was complete. And as John the Baptist says, he must increase, but I must decrease. For us, as we work as ministers of Christ in whatever capacity that might be, there will be a moment or perhaps even many moments like that for us. We do our best to tell people about Jesus, to model Jesus for others, but we should be ready for that time when our own ministry fades into the background as Christ's ministry for himself becomes central. And I think particularly of this when I'm talking with someone and that person will say something that they learned about God or about Jesus, not because they're repeating something that they've heard, but because they have learned it from God through their devotions or through their experience. And like John the Baptist, we look forward to seeing Jesus minister to people directly. And when this happens, we think he must increase and I must decrease. It isn't our ministry that matters, but it is the ministry of Christ directly in the hearts of those who follow him. John has been put into prison, and Jesus begins his ministry in Galilee. So let us now look at what it is that Jesus says. He says, The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. We are told that Jesus preached the gospel, which again is the good news of the salvation that God even then was providing through Jesus Christ. 
And Jesus also says that the kingdom of God is at hand. And the kingdom of God is something that Jesus will often talk about in his ministry. Sometimes it's referred to as the kingdom of heaven, but these two terms really are very similar, uh, if not interchangeable. So we're not told usually about what the kingdom of God is directly, but we learn about it through comparisons in what Jesus teaches. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure that is hidden in a field. It is like a grain of mustard seed. It is like when wheat is sown among tares, or like a man who hires laborers into his vineyard, or a king who holds a banquet for his son. These comparisons help us to understand what the kingdom of God is like. But for an understanding of what it is, it's best for us to look at that phrase literally. It's God's kingdom. It is the place where the rule of God is absolute. Sometimes we talk about the long-suffering nature of God, which is what God permits as God waits for the full number of his people to be brought in. But we're headed toward a time when the rule of God will be complete and where all the things that happen will be only those things which are completely in accordance with God's will. The sin that entered this world through Adam will be judged and condemned, and there will be no more sin and no more sorrow. This Jesus is preaching is at hand. It's the opening of Jesus, and it will be the theme of Jesus' ministry as he makes his way toward the cross. Now that we have gone over these events, let us look to bring them together by seeing what is common to the three of them. And what we can see in each of these events is very closely tied, I think, to what we just talked about when Jesus was speaking of the kingdom of God being at hand and the time being fulfilled, which is why we didn't uh, bring this up until now. In Jesus Christ, God made his rule complete in mankind. Before him, no man and no woman lived a life in complete harmony and obedience to God's will. Not Adam, not Eve, not Abraham or Sarah, or any other father or mother in, or in the faith, or any other person who has ever lived. Only Jesus Christ lived a life that was in complete line with the rule of God, and only in Jesus Christ was the fullness of God pleased to dwell. And that is something that we see driven home in these three events. First, we see God's fullness in Christ demonstrated in Jesus' baptism. Jesus was filled with the Spirit, and God said, You are my beloved Son, in you I am well pleased. In his temptation, Jesus follows the will of God and does not deviate. He isn't enticed by the temptation of the devil, but his will and his actions continue to be perfectly aligned with God. And now as Jesus begins his ministry in Galilee, Jesus proclaims that God's rule in humankind is complete. God has dwelt fully with man and made his place among us. And now we, by repenting and believing, experience the joy of that salvation. God has made a way to himself by dwelling fully among us in Jesus Christ. And this knowledge of God's dwelling among us is our final application. God was sufficient in Jesus Christ. He was sufficient in his baptism, in his temptation, and in his ministry. So for us, is there some aspect of our lives that isn't fully ruled by God? Is there some part of our lives that we have not asked God to rule over? When we enter the kingdom of heaven, it won't be that way. At that time, the rule of God will be absolute. So whatever part of our lives that we try to hold on to now will only be ruled by God later. And so how much better is it for us to allow God's rule in our lives now? Just as it was for Jesus, the fullness of God's rule over us is sufficient. 
As it says in Psalm 16, in him is the fullness of joy. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, you are the potter and we are the clay. Help us to serve you well and to have you dwell fully in us. We thank you again for the gift of your son, and it is in his name that we pray. Amen.